Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Uh, hello, Kat. I have seen Sonic 2 AMA. Also joining me is my other lovely co-host, Eric Van Allen. I haven't seen Sonic. I'm afraid of the Sonic movies and what they'll do to me, so I avoid them at all costs. Uh, I have questions. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. We have a special guest, my pal, the Black Dragon himself. It's Jeff Green. Hello. I uh, also have not seen Sonic, and I will never see Sonic. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> Even free on TV, I'm mm-hmm. going to switch the channel. Honestly, Jeff, um, I hate to be a killjoy, but I'm with you. I will never see Sonic 2 because I saw Sonic 1 and that was enough Sonic for me. I'm all good. It's cute. It was fun. Uh, I have to say Idris Elba is like the most inspired casting choice for a video game movie ever. Mm. Apparently he wanted to do a squeaky voice for some reason. So glad he didn't. Honestly, I have so much more respect for Idris Elba. Like I always liked Idris Elba, but... Cover, uh, his appearance in Sonic 2 has made me appreciate him even more because he's hilarious. They he is. He plays it great. Are you familiar with the furry Sonic controllers? Oh, oh God, yeah. yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, the IGN people handed them to him. And Jim Carrey was like, get those things away from me. And Idris Elba <laughs> was like, whoa, these are dope. And he was like putting them. He was like, look, I got to make a little mustache and everything. So I was like, good job on you for rolling with it, Idris Elba. Yes, we have our pal Jeff Green here because we're finally continuing this new this uh, our ongoing segment, the PC RPG Quest, and we are into the two thousands, the golden month. age, the golden mm-hmm. age. Oh, do you think mm-hmm. so? I consider it the dark age. No, <laughs> really? No. Oh, dear. Well, yeah. it's, it's the end of the golden age. I think. Fair enough. Yes, we'll be talking about the golden age and or the dark age of RPGs. Um, in the PC RPG quest, we'll also be doing a few other things in this particular episode. On top of all of the usual segments, I'm going to be talking about my Persona 3 portable playthrough. I'm very excited. Before we get to all of that, thank you so much to our listeners who are supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Pod. As always, we have a really great crew here. Special thanks to Beware the Slimes. Darren Deer, Drew RWX, Cal L, Not Hollow, Mangle, Alts, Ruka, Sardin, Vic Boss, and Young Sheldon Ring. Which, by the way, Young Sheldon Ring is just an incredible name. Incredible. That's inspired. I'm a huge fan. Also, uh, here are a few other announcements. Um, May is going to be the top 25 ranking month. That's when we're going to be doing our top 25 RPG countdown remake. So you can look forward to that. That's going to be a lot of fun. We also recently posted our Pantheon of the Blood God episode available to $10 listeners. And this month's episode was Valkyrie Profile, my favorite RPG of all time. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore Catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And Eric is at Cmoosi, S-E-A-M-O-O-S-I. And Jeff, hey, welcome back. Tell us where we can find you and what you've been up to. You can find me uh, at Greenspeak on Twitter, and that's actually my Twitch name as well. And I'm back on Twitch after a long Hell hiatus. Yeah. Ooh, sweet. Yeah. So I uh, I had streamed almost all of the From Software games, and but I, I took a two-year-plus break from streaming, and uh, now I'm back with, of course, Elden Ring. 
So you can find my uh, Elden Ring stream on YouTube and Twitch. Awesome. And yeah, that's kind of all I've been playing, but I think we'll, <laughs> we'll be getting to I that. I understand. Before we move on, I just want to talk a little bit about our plans for Dungeons and Dragons. As you know, we made a promise that if we made it to $6,000 on our Patreon, we would do a Dungeons and Dragons one shot. We've since dipped down a little bit below that, but we are true to our promise. We are going to be doing it. It will be available to all of our listeners. We are currently planning on recording it on April 17th. Shivam Bhatt will be our grand our will be our dungeon master. I almost said grandmaster for some reason. And uh, we will hopefully stream it. We're still kind of working out the logistics a little bit, but fingers crossed, we'll be doing a really fun D&D stream and everybody's invited. Stars of Destiny, free listeners, everybody. It'll be a regular Axe of the Blood God party as Eric, Nadia, and I learn how to play Dungeons and Dragons. It's going to be great. But we actually rolled up our characters the other day. We have our characters all set to go. So let's just take a second to introduce our characters for all of our listeners. And Eric, I'll start with you. Hello. Uh, the character I'll be playing, which I teased before, is Koronok, a tiefling warlock. Uh, and the general backstory of this character is that when he was a young boy, his father, a traitor, uh, traitor with an R-A-D-E-R, like traitor of goods, not a traitor to the crown. Uh, they they humble yeah happened upon a minstrel and, and some other entertainers only they were a bunch of bandits and they set upon them, killed his father and his Cornock ran to the woods, bleeding out the Fey pixies of the woods offered him a deal. You can have life back if you become our eternal plaything. And so Cornock is now a warlock has the pixies as a patron and uh, is searching out the, the acts of the blood God for, reasons let's say uh they might be for his own purposes and they might be for the pixies purpose who's to say uh i definitely plan on being a little bit of the uh the shady character of the group so i'm looking forward to that but uh lots of eldritch blasts in my future is what i'm looking forward to the most (laughs) (laughs) nadia what character are you playing Uh, i am playing a red dragonborn named uh Uh, she's 50 years old, uh, a little bit older. She usually hangs out in the woods, but uh, she kind of has a problem where she uh, will fire type and, uh, dragons of any kind and forests don't go together that very, very well. So when she uh, sneezes or, you know, she drools a little bit because she's older and her teeth maybe aren't as good, uh, she starts fires. So she's just kind of on the road to kind of let things recuperate a bit and uh, just said uh, you know she's 50 she wants to see the world as well so she's kind of killing two birds with one stone or two forests with one stone and uh, she met up with cat and they are going to do acts of the blood god stuff look for this this god and whereas cat has her own reasons for looking for the acts of the blood god calfor is kind of hanging out number one but number two she actually would very much like to ask the blood god a question you know how it is when you, you get a chance to ask god a question so that's what she's kind of up to and uh yeah we'll see where things go from there nadia what's your class archer ranger sorry yes nadia is a dragonborn ranger and i am i will play Kara the wanderer she is a paladin lawful good very justice oriented 
when she was much younger, she was raised in a community that worshipped the moon goddess Saloon uh, around the moon sea. And then one day, the worshippers of Shar showed up and destroyed her home. Terrible things happened. She saw many terrible things. And as a result, she is now haunted. She is a haunted lawful good paladin who now travels the world. And she has learned that she can acquire this artifact. It's called the Axe of the Blood God. And she will use it to defeat Shar and her followers. This artifact that can kill the gods themselves. But in seeking the Axe of the Blood God, will she put her soul in immortal danger? Find out in this one shot starring the three of us which is probably happening on April 17th. We will record it and we're going to put it on the free fee for everybody. And hopefully we can stream it. It's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Jeff, are you a big D&D fan? I, I was back in the day before probably all of you were born. So <laughs> The 80s? I challenge you on that. <laughs> 70s? 70s. Oh, wow. Like OG. OG, yeah. OG, um, yeah, I can't fan. roll up a character on the spot. I mean, I'm not playing with you guys anyway, but but, oh. but my default was always a dwarf paladin. Right uh, probably chaotic good. <laughs> that sounds like you. You're very chaotic good, Jeff. I Jeff am chaotic and Nadia good. both chaotic good. Yeah, kind of role-playing myself. <laughs> I'm kind of role-playing myself in this case. I don't drill fire, but who knows what the future will bring. In the meantime, let's talk now about what we've been playing, our sacrifices to the Blood God. And Jeff, you're a special guest. And also, you've been playing a lot of Elden Ring and you've been streaming it. A lot. So please tell us about your experiences with Elden Ring and how they compare to your previous previous Soulsborne runs. Yeah, it's... I go back and forth. Like, is is it the best one or is it the worst one? I really can't decide. I'm somewhere, you know, it depends on the day and my mood and the hour. Um, you know, I think maybe it's the, maybe it's the easiest, maybe. But this game is so weird that it's just hard to tell, right? I mean, you can do things in this game that you can't do in the other games, like completely bypass entire areas and go do something else. Um, that was not possible before. I mean, the horse alone gives you a degree of power that we've never had before, right? Um, both in combat and just in terms of navigation. I mean, and speaking of navigation, you've got fast traveling everywhere. Um, it's So they made some concessions towards um, <clears throat> approachability, but they didn't really um, make anything actually easier, really. I mean, the bosses are still the bosses. Um, a lot of the trash mobs will still kick your ass if you're not careful. Um, you can't just blunder forward in this game, which is basically how I play the game is, is blundering forward. So that's why my stream is going to be 900 parts before I get done. <laughs> yeah, there are definitely moments where they kind of, uh, it's like, hey, here's you can use your ashes here. You can use your horse. You can do basically whatever you want. But there are certainly times where they take away your ashes and they take away your horse. And they're like, okay, smart ass, do it now. And that's, a, exactly. that's always a very soulsy experience. And by the way, I am firmly in the camp of you can use the ashes. It's not cheating. If, if you think it's cheating, you're just looking at it all wrong. They put it in the game for a reason. You can summon ghost wolves. Like, that is so cool. Yes, like, why would so you deny cool. yourself the, uh, the experience? I don't understand. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's fine if people want to play that game and not summon. And 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 if that's how they want to play, if they want to do a naked run with no weapons and no summoning, great. You're awesome. Do it. But don't judge anybody else for how they play. These games are hard enough. I'm I am pro cheese. Whatever it takes. I'm pro it's whatever fun. it takes to be. Yeah, it I is mean, fun. the it's Blood God community cheese. carried me through a good chunk of Bloodborne, and I don't feel bad about that at all. Right, right. So that's where I fall in that. In that, I'm, I'm trying to start an argument, and I think we're all on the same side. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm definitely on your side on this one. Yeah, because I've been playing a lot of Elden Ring too, so I understand where you're coming from. Wait a minute. Am I supposed to play devil's advocate here? Am I supposed to come in and be like, Jeff, you're so bad at the Elden Ring? I think you've had enough. You're not playing it right. Week, Kat. Yeah, <laughs> you've had exactly. enough for one week. I yeah. I mean, I I think it's great overall. I'm having a ton of fun with it. Um, but yeah, like I said at, at the top, I still can't. I don't know where I would rank this one because it's so different than all the others. I, I think I, I think I have to finish it before I can rank it. I really love it and it it just hits differently compared to previous games in the Soulsborne game series like I just played I just finished playing Bloodborne and that was like a survival horror game plus Resident Evil plus Castlevania it did not put a lot of emphasis on the actual RPG elements but it had a great story and great lore I was really invested in its world whereas with Elden Ring I just love the exploration. I love the combat. I love the the flow and the vibe of the actual game. There's so much to discover. And there are kind of two coins, two sides of the same coin. Yeah. But they're really good in their own way. And I kind of urge everybody to play as much as you can. Having said that, I sort of feel like after playing Elden Ring, it's difficult for me to go back to say Dark Souls, which remains Mm -hmm. amazing in its own right but elden ring has evolved the formula so much um jeff i'm wondering what your perspective is since you kind of famously played through dark souls uh on your stream yeah i um i haven't gone back to any of the other games since i started elden ring but i've really wanted to because i have a feeling that i'm gonna feel the same way that that you do i think it's gonna be hard to go back I think that some of the things that we can do now in Elden Ring, we will want, we will wish we could do in those other games, and also the linearity of the game and the and the, the tight spaces. It's just exactly. a whole different feel. Yeah. Um, but I would say that um, you know the the set pieces and the architecture and just some of the the mood of the earlier games, I do find at least so far superior to Elden Ring. Like Elden Ring has a lot of open space that could kind of be any game in some places. It could be many different RPGs. Whereas when you're playing Dark Souls or Bloodborne, that like oppressive gothic air that hangs mm-hmm. over the whole thing is, you know, it's overwhelming. And I don't I don't get that same sense in parts of Elden Ring. But I also haven't seen a whole lot of that game yet. So you know, so my opinion could change on that. Um, those games are classic. So even if I can't go back to the other ones, my memories are are great of all those games. How far are you, actually? Well, I beat Godric. Um, mm. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, 
now I'm wandering through that um, academy, the uh, the magic. Oh, really? Academy. The the Burger King Academy, yeah. Why is it called <laughs> the Burger King Academy? I gotta know this. All the masks look like Burger King masks. Oh, yeah. okay. Because I was just thinking about like I see those guys out of the corner of my eye, and I'm like, why is the Burger King here? Oh shit, mm-hmm, he's killing mm-hmm. him. The Magic Burger King. <laughs> so like I have no idea how far that is. Is that ten percent? Five percent? It's hard I have to no say. Idea. It's, it's like twenty five percent. Yeah, twenty five percent. Something like that. Okay. 25, 30%, I think. Um, yeah. All right. Yeah, there's some actually, yeah, there's a lot of open space uh, through El- Elden Ring, but there are also some incredible levels, definitely on the level of the best I've seen in several of the Soulsborne games. Um, when they just, they'll just drop them in. And maybe one reason that I like Elden Ring, or at least Elden Ring hits a bit different than, say, Breath of the Wild is. Breath of the Wild doesn't have any actual bespoke levels on that on that kind of level. And I know that like it gets a little tiresome to talk about the the dungeon um, kind of discussion with Breath of the Wild, much like the weapon breakage discussion in Breath of the Wild. But I have to say that playing through Elden Ring the world feels more fully formed because it has that kind of those spaces for me to explore that feel so sprawling and expansive. Mm-hmm. I think one important difference between uh, Elden Ring and Breath of the Wild is that Elden Ring is very much focused. Your progression is very much focused around what build do you want for your character? Because early in the game, I had like just the greatest thrill hunting through ruins and finding weapons and spells and saying, maybe I should try this. Maybe I should try this. Now that I'm more settled into a high dex build as I get closer to the end of the game, I'm like, okay, well, it's not as much fun to explore ruins because you kind of know what you're getting into. But I think that's what Elden Ring's strength is versus Zelda. I mean, they're both great games. I love them both equally, I would say. But uh, yeah, that's how I look at it. I, I was just going to chime. Like I, I fell off of Elden Ring, and I haven't really gotten back on the train since. And I'm about where you are, Jeff. Um, but you know, because of my my job, my day job, I have to follow everything that happens with Elden Ring. And I think the one thing that stuck out to me here versus other Souls games is that the characters are very memorable. Very like they they've grown an attachment with people that. I mean, you had Solaire in Souls. And uh, a few other characters like Patches that have kind Patches. of been recurring things. But He's there. characters like Ronnie and Blyde and uh, even Radon and a lot of the major characters in this game have a lot of real attachment to them. And it feels like because of the way this game is structured and the way it lets you kind of go down different paths and chase after whatever characters or, or quest lines interest you, it asks more involvement of the player rather than like kind of stumbling into things as you go, like you do with Solaire in Dark Souls 1, uh, it really feels like the game says, chase after this threat if you want to. Uh, and so it, it gets you a little bit more involved that way. And so people, I think, are developing real attachments to characters like Ronnie because they, they're they saying, like, I want to know more about this character. I want to learn more about this character. And also the, the writing around those characters is really, really good. Like probably some of the best writing FromSoft has had possibly ever so? it's up there with bloodborne for me it's very good yeah i i love a lot of the stuff around just the mythology of the world and the sort of ideas that it gets into and some big twists i won't get into here for spoiler reasons but really cool ideas about world building and godhood and 
the the nature of things that's really really interesting just from like a writing perspective you really have to work for the quests in this game like the ronnie quest is not something you just bang out in one mm-hmm. day because like i'm actually stuck there because well you wouldn't have an anime named natural born of the void you don't really expect yeah. them to, to be easy to to kill and no so i'm I, I but that's the beauty thing about elden ring i could say okay you know what i have to come back to this obviously when i'm stronger so i've just been uh, you know, doing other things and stumbling on other quests. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, depending on how you look at it, you can miss character quest sidelines. Um, unfortunately, I, I I missed the quest with, uh, what's his name? Rogier, the, the sorcerer. Oh, and yeah. Yep. I, it's like one minute he's like, you know, hey, how you doing over at Stormvale Castle? And next I see him dying on a balcony. I'm like, what happened? I think I missed Oh, okay. I think you were sleeping with the death hug lady. Uh, you don't sleep with the death hug lady. That's a the bad death idea. Hug lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a bad time. <laughs> I think it's funny that you're all praising the world building and everything. And maybe, maybe, maybe I'm in the wrong here. I mean, it certainly would not be the first time. I mean, there was a video released just today that's like 30 minutes discussing all of the lore and everything behind Elden Ring. I saw that. But to yeah. me. It feels a little like a greatest hits compilation of previous Soulsborne games uh, cobbled together in a way that doesn't always feel entirely coherent. There's definitely stuff that I enjoy and everything, but I'm having a hard time kind of piecing it together in my mind. And I, I was joking on Twitter that with Bloodborne, I was like, I have to know what's going on with this. What the heck is going on with Monster Lady? Why is everybody turning into monsters? What's going on with this world? Why why are we falling deeper and deeper into cosmic horror? Whereas with Elden Ring, I'm like, haha, that guy looks like the sneak king from Burger King. That's like literally as far as my thinking goes with Elden Ring. So I'm just kind of curious, what am I missing? I think it's fun to kind of piece it together because you do things like you're running along on your horse, you see a church. First Church of Marika, for Second Church or whatever. Uh, the Church of Vows, this is my favorite. You go into the Church of Vows and you're not expecting anything. And you turn around and holy shit, there's a huge turtle there. And you talk to the turtle who's wearing a Pope hat. And he'll tell you all about, you know, certain gods and so-and-so's consort and this and that. And uh, kind of in the context of religion, because he's of this religion of, of vows. And uh, so just you, st- you find stuff like that simply by stumbling on people. And especially later on, as the game seems to get smaller in a way. And you get more familiar with it, you'll see an NPC just kind of at the side of the road, like, hey, how you doing? And then you'll find a quest that you didn't really know existed. And no, I I really kind of just piece what I can together with like by talking to NPCs. And most of them will give you an option to say something different and interesting. Admittedly, I have, of course, looked up lore and stuff in wikis and whatnot, but I'll do that for any game. I do it for Final Fantasy XIV constantly. I just want to add that I would die for Turtle Pope. All things can be conjoined. Raya Lucaria, the the academy that we've been talking about, is actually a really good example of kind of environmental storytelling in Elden Ring because it's one that you will kind of go through and it can be just a dungeon, basically, that you go through and you beat a couple bosses in there and move on with your life. But the way that things are laid out, the places in which you fight certain enemies, and even the absence of certain gameplay elements ends up telling a broader story about the shape of the world, the factions that are competing in it and what the fallout has been from major events that play out even at the beginning of the game and in the first thing you see. And so I do think it is a game where you're going to have to dig a little bit and maybe like 
uh, tap into what is what is going on. And, and there might be an aspect of, you know, you got to look for certain, you know, people to do those lore explainers. Vati did put out his first video today uh, and I watched that earlier and that helped me gain a greater appreciation for some of like the the God and demigod stuff in this game. But uh, it's there. It's I promise it's there. It's a lot of it. There's one like one of the big twists in the game is a little hidden and you have to kind of like work for it a little bit. And I kind of like that. Oh, well, I was going to say that, you know, all their games really are about environmental storytelling, right? Yeah. They're very good at that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. None of their games have characters with, with exclamation points over their head. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to find everything in this game, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me. Like, you know, you can miss entire, you can not know the storyline of any of these games and actually still have a great time playing them. Case in point, me. Eric, what are you playing? Uh, I'll I'll just briefly say that yes, I am playing Shadowbringers, and yes, it is very good. But I'll have more thoughts on that once I have composed <laughs> thoughts on that. It's a it's a lot. Uh, the thing I want to shout out this week is Norco. I started playing about an hour or so of that uh, over the weekend, and as someone who grew up in the South as someone who, who has an appreciation for Southern fiction and stories about the South. So definitely things like Kentucky route zero, um, but also in Faulkner and stuff like that. Um, Norco is really hitting a spot for me. Um, it is both a classic style point and click adventure where you are going through these really gorgeous, uh, scenes laid out really carefully, but it has so many, uh, I guess what I'd say modern features of there's kind of a pseudo party building aspect. There is uh, a thought cabinet similar to what you have in disco Elysium, where you can kind of work through things in your mind and that will kind of inform the narrative and, and let you learn more about the world around you as your character thinks through it. The whole thing is about you returning home to a Southern hometown that you escaped uh, a former company town uh, and uh, your mother has passed away and you're kind of taking care of her estate and begin to unravel a greater mystery behind what your mother was doing and what the company town has been up to while you were gone. Uh, that already for a lot of people, I think will sit off like, Ooh, <laughs> sounds, <laughs> sounds interesting. Um, and it's, it's just really something else. Uh, a, a lot of people have been heaping a lot of praise onto it. And so that's what initially put it onto my radar. Uh, the it's, it's one of those games where you look at the art and you say like, this is clearly something different in and of itself, just in terms of its visual approach, but it's doing some really interesting things with the adventure game style um, in, in ways that I, I've talked about it on here before, but it does feel like, the adventure game genre is trying to figure out what next steps are. And some of those look like disco Elysium where you are looking at a tabletop style influence. Some look like the telltale games where they are moving towards that sort of more involved, uh, third person action almost with telltale. Uh, and this feels much more like the classic sort of thing, almost like a, a monkey Island, a LucasArts sort of thing, but with a lot of modern ideas also being incorporated and then just steeped in both cyberpunk and, and Southern Gothic literature and all kinds of stuff. It's, it's really, really cool. So if Kentucky route zero was something that you dug, if anything about Southern fiction is something that you dig, this is worth looking into. Cause it really feels like 
one of the ones that is going to get overlooked uh, by the end of the year. So I'm already getting out the pots and pans to bang about this one when it comes around to December and we're talking about games of the year. It makes me think of how RPGs are maybe the most flexible genre around, and yet it is weirdly conservative. There are so many interesting topics, like the one that you were just described, that RPGs could do a lot more to tackle and then use its stats-based gameplay in novel ways to move the gameplay forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's. I hesitate to call it an RPG, but it definitely has things that feel akin to disco Elysium, like very tabletop ideas of almost there are prompts being given to you and you choose how to respond to them. And they don't really carry, they might, they might have branching decisions and all that kind of stuff, but it's also about how do you want to flavor the world with the choices you make? And then there's the game responding in kind, like the relationship between a DM and a player. And so the way that disco Elysium did something with that, the way that, um, other games that are coming out soon that I cannot Disco talk Elysium about. and other games we can't really name. <laughs> yeah. Game I am so darn eager to talk about, but cannot talk about right now. Uh, but there, it feels like there's kind of an examining of the relationships that build in tabletop games and how games, video games could replicate them and create similar situations in a single player setting. And that does, I mean, that's role playing games, right? Like if we boil down an RPG, it's not just about, is it a final fantasy or a dragon quest or something? It's about, it's a role playing game. Are you establishing a person and playing that role? And Norco feels in that box. So that's how I cheat and get it on here. And we set the counter for, is it an RPG back to zero? <laughs> Worse. You how said dare. the magic words. I know. Well, right? I mean, they were playing a role. There you go. Mm-hmm. Video game. RPG. Uh-huh. Nadia, what are you playing? Well, I already talked about Elden Ring. I think I'm getting to the end. Uh, this game is a lot bigger than you probably think it is, uh, Jeff, just warning you about uh, up front. There is an <laughs> above and there is a below. That's all I'll say. But anyway, uh, I want to get that squared away before the next 6.1 patch comes out, Final Fantasy XIV, which is happening on the 12th. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to, but uh, what are you gonna? I, I'm giving it the good old-fashioned college try. Besides that, I am playing Kirby, Kirby's and the uh, Forgotten World. And it is so weird to be playing this game in conjunction with like, <laughs> Elden Ring. It's just like the two most opposite it's gameplay wonderful. experiences you could imagine. And yet so similar in so many unsettling ways. Kirby feels like he would belong just fine in, in the lands between. He'd be like, hi, over to like some dead person. And the dead person would come back to life long enough to say, hi, Kirby. And they'd be pals because, I don't know, it just feels like it would mesh that way. But it's like really, the thing about Kirby games is if you blow through them, sure, they're they're pretty easy. They're, they're for kids. But the, the idea of Kirby games is to find things. And things are usually hidden in really delightful, cute ways. It's a delightful, cute game. I just did a level where you know, like it's an amusement park and it's a fun house and it has that horrible but amazing neon like carpet that you find and like glow in the dark uh, mini golf places like has that aesthetic and that's brilliant you just let's have a level inside of a a, a crapped out indoor gol- a mini golf thing like it's great it's such a great little game and i'm really enjoying it i every level is a wonderful surprise and i just really enjoy exploring it i think it's the best kirby ever made and i, don't I think, think it's so particularly <laughs> close yeah I really love yeah. Kirby's Adventure and Kirby Superstar. 
and whatnot. But Kirby in the Forgotten Land just hits right. Every level is a real gem of not just level design and being able to find things, but hilarity. I it's really am laughing cute, yeah. constantly in that game. I love how, like, here's an example. I'm at the amusement park level, and you see those little uh, woofies lined up waiting for a ride. And if you go in front of them, they'll attack you <laughs> if, if you cut in line. <laughs> if you don't cut in line, they're fine with you. Well, I started a new project. So it's called This Week in GeckoCon. It started on April 6th. I've been playing Persona 3 Portable day by day. And I'm going to turn this into its own segment relatively soon. But here's a little bit of what's been happening in GeckoCon High School. I am playing as a girl in Persona 3 Portable. I have joined GeckoCon High School. Sadly, in Persona 3 Portable, they don't have the cutscene. So you don't have that lovely anime uh. cutscene where you get to see the, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the actual town and everything to be able to explore. And of course, it's a point and click adventure. I have met Junpei. I met uh, Yukari. Yukari? Is that her name? Uh, I can remember. I can't remember her name. Yukari. Uh, is it? Did I get it right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you got yes. it. You got it. Yay. Yukari and Junpei Iori. Uh, Junpei is kind of a hapless uh, F up, but he's cute. I've already saved his bacon in class. I, I remember the. Uh, the teacher's favorite novelist, and he was very relieved. And also, we are starting to delve into the mystery of the Midnight Hour, which is very scary. I saw a guy like bleeding black pitch from his eyes, which, um, and it made me think about how Persona 3, Persona 4, and Persona 5 are definitely dark in their own way, but Persona 3 Portable is maybe the darkest out of all of them. So I'm looking forward to delving into that. Oh, and I went into the Velvet Room for the first time and met uh, Igor. So we're moving right along. And another thought, Persona 3 gets started so much more quickly than Persona 4 and Persona 5. It's not even yeah. funny. Oh my gosh. Just cut to the chase, other games. Persona 3 cuts to the chase in a way that I really appreciate. Are y'all going to be playing Persona 3 Portable with me or Persona 3 Fest? I'm definitely going to be trying. Last time we went to, what was it, which anime, which PAX was it? It was PAX West. And I was with Eric and he called the uh, convention center the Tartarus because it has so many floors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, like I've said before, I've gotten into P3 a few times and really do enjoy it. But it's just, you know, you get a certain amount of time into an RPG and then you drop off of it, you may as well just start it over. And so I've done that yeah. multiple times with P3. And so this is the one where I'm going to try and really commit. This is the scouts effort getting this one done uh, or, or go down trying. So I, I really do, do want to finish it because it is probably my favorite cast of the persona casts. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think that persona three has some really great characters in it. So Jeff, have you ever played a persona game? I played Persona 4 on my, I guess it must have been the PS4, right? Um, but like Eric said, I that's a game that I started over multiple times. I, I, I think probably because of the slow start. But I never, you know, with games like that, for it doesn't, they almost never click for me. It, like, And so that's what I do. I play like 10 hours, I put it down, and then like... <laughs> Three months later, I go, oh, God, I totally forgot about mm -hmm. that game. I'm just yeah. going to I'm, I'm going to boot that up. 
And then I boot it up and I have no idea what's going on. So I start a new game and then that cycle repeats. I did that with Octopath Traveler, which I was loving, but I just, I drop off the JRPGs. I don't know why. I love the image of you like playing a game with like, you know, anime high school drama. That's uh, that's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, it, that's the thing. It's like kind of hard to play that and, and have my wife walk in. And like, what are you doing? <laughs> what size is that girl's bazooms? Yeah, yeah. That that stuff in particular. Is, I'm only dating for the stats. Hard to, hard to explain. <laughs> All right. Well, that is what we have been playing. And now for a series of random encounters. Speaking of Elden Ring, Radon is officially back at full strength after a brand new patch. So watch out, Jeff. Uh, Radon's a Radon's a toughie. Are you afraid? No, mm-hmm. I got him. Mm-hmm. You got him in one. You took him out in one. No, not at all. <laughs> it, it, it's a very theatrical fight. Um, I, I got him during his nerf phase. So I'm kind of curious to see Me what too. makes him so much harder. Yeah. That was a great fight. I had a lot of fun with that. So wait, they nerfed it and now they've unnerfed it or they just... It's, un, it's unnerfed now. He's, he's yeah, unnerfed. There is a new exploit, though, that you can use to take him out pretty easy. It's pretty funny, too. I, I think he is a hilarious design. It looks like he's on a little, like, little wheels <laughs> and he's, he's zooming around. <laughs> he's on the little tricycle. Yes. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> He has a little. Let me has a little horn. <laughs> no, it's got a little horse. The horse's name is Leonard. Mm-hmm. Someone mm-hmm. found that out by uh, data diving. Poor little uh, the, guy. The story is he was a great knight and he had a, a trusty steed, Leonard. I'm guessing the name was. And uh, as he grew, I don't know why he grew god powers. I don't know. He kept his horse, but he uses gravity magic so he doesn't like hurt the horse. So they're basically friends. Still the hardest working horse in in the lands between, in my opinion. Absolutely, God, no question. Square Enix has trademarked Tactics Ogre Reborn, thus raising our hope that Tactics Ogre may finally be coming back after a long time. Fingers crossed for a WA in particular, who is going, don't, don't play with my heart like that. Please don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Haunted Chocolatier will have boss fights, which will be, no, it's an interesting dynamic from Stardew Valley for sure. Stardew Valley, or Starfield, introduced us to Vasco the Robot Companion, Unreal Engine 5 is officially out, so we'll be seeing games from that pretty soon. And there was a big Lost Ark update with two new classes and tons of new content. But our top story is that the Final Fantasy XIV patch 6.1 is out this week. It'll be out on April 12th. Nadia and Eric are two big Final Fantasy 12 or 14 fans. Jeff, I don't know if you play Final Fantasy 14 very much. My uh, one of my coworkers, Ryan Scott, is a huge Final oh, Fantasy yeah. guy, uh, Final <laughs> Fantasy fourteen guy. So he made me play, and I played up until it stopped being free, um, and I, I was enjoying it. Uh, but then I, I hit a paywall and I stopped. But but I was enjoying it a lot more than I thought I would. Yes. Honestly, yes. One more voice to lure Cat <laughs> to the dark side. <laughs> Yeah, I, I could easily be swayed if I didn't have like incredible PTSD from monthly MMO feeds. Ah, so. Yeah, yeah. 
I like all the people in the chat saying things like no cat play and other people saying stay strong cat stay strong <laughs> but the final fantasy 14 patch 6.1 will be out on april 12th nadia you're the host of charlie and dropouts our monthly final fantasy 14 uh, podcast and i'm wondering can you just talk us through it really fast uh, it's basically the first big patch since 6.0, and um, the whole premise is you are not exactly on a vacation, but you're kind of taking it easy, and of course you can't because something happens, you're the warrior of light, and sure, sure enough, stuff is stirring. Uh, the main big thing about this update is it has uh, a new raid, which is centered around the gods, the, the pantheon of gods uh, in Final Fantasy XIV, which we actually know very little about. We do know that they helped stop the apocalypse when Bahamut was raging across everything and, you know, all of that. So it's like, for example, my my character is a Makote, a keeper of the moon, and his god, goddess, is actually, uh, what's her name? Um, Memphina, the goddess uh, of, of the moon. So I'm just kind of curious to see what she looks like, because I have no idea. I don't know what she's like. I don't know anything like that. And it's going to be interesting tone-wise because we just came back from the literal end of the universe in Endwalker, so... Uh, Spoiler yeah. alert. I mean, everyone knows that, but, like, it's it's pretty uh, pretty obvious. It's like, God, they showed in the trailer. But anyway, yeah, so it's just going to be... Um, basically, things are going to be a lot more chill, I suppose, supposedly. Who knows with the Final Fantasy fourteen? Uh, there's also a lot of uh, additional quality of life things, but I think it's the raid that's the main thing. And of course, there's like a million, you know, new mounts, new this, new that. So yeah, it's uh, gonna be a good time. So uh, I, I took my earphones out for the folks at home. I took my headphones out while Nadia was describing all that because I will not be spoiled before I get there. <laughs> but uh, I do want to note one change that I have heard tell of, and that is very important for Nadia and I in particular. Dragoons can no longer permanently die by backflipping off the platform on the navel. Uh, the navel is an early fight that you can do in Final Fantasy XIV that's on top of a giant plateau. And notoriously, dragoons would kill themselves by trying to do really cool backflips to dodge attacks and go flying off the platform and die. And for some reason, because of the out of bounds there, you could not be revived. So yeah. I myself and I'm sure many other dragoons have experienced the shame of backflipping to your doom and then having to watch as seven other people all know exactly what you did, that you cannot <laughs> be brought back. They're permanently down a person and you have learned the lesson of backflipping. <laughs> and I'm sad yeah. that that's gone now because honestly, Dragoons need hubris, all right? Dragoons need to learn lessons. <laughs> that was my uh, first lesson. Get that off my taskbar. No, no, no. I kept it on the taskbar because there is no reward without great risk, but it's still a lot of fun to, to just see somebody do that for the first time and be like, yeah, I've been there. That's that's the that's dragoon exactly. experience. That's very important. That's key to the experience. So I am I sad at. that that's going away. Yeah, I did get laughed at and I got three commendations that day because I think everyone felt bad for me. And just like Aww. the tank saying, look, look at how they massacred my boys. My my body is lying there broken. <laughs> it's a very soulsy fate. I can't tell you how many times I've lost thousands upon thousands of souls because in the middle of a oh, boss God. fight or something else, I just wandered right off the, the level and went, oh, there I go. I'm dead. The stupidest thing I have done in Elden Ring is I was fighting some monster. I was hanging on to all my runes. I should have spent them, but I didn't. I had like 20,000 of them. 
and I died. And I go, okay, fine. I'll go back to the uh, the boss or whatever. I think it was in a mine, and I like stepped backwards and I fell down the shaft. So I died, and I couldn't mm-hmm. get my runes back. Because- Lost them forever. <laughs> yeah. You know what we call that? That's being free. You are no longer burdened by those runes. <laughs> it's only when you lose everything that you are free to do anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that happened to me, and I'm gonna do some show and tell for people who can see. This is my space bar. This is half my space bar. Oh my gosh. Because I because ba- I banged my fist on the keyboard when I lost I lost fifteen thousand rooms. Oh beauty. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I understand. Beautiful. It's like Marshall from How I Met Your Mother. Damn it. <laughs> I know that reference because I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan. Anyway. Final Fantasy fourteen is a very popular PC MMORPG. It is arguably the heir to World of Warcraft. And World of Warcraft dominated the PC scene in the 2000s. Arguably, it dominated for 15 years. So many people were playing it. It transformed Blizzard, for better or worse, into a totally different company. But in the meantime, PCs in general, PC RPGs in general, were changing a lot. Famous companies like Black Isle Studios were dying. Obsidian was coming into being. New players were rising. Bioware became very popular in this decade. And earlier, Jeff was saying that it was the golden age of RPGs. And as we embark on this PC RPG quest for the 2000s, continuing our journey through the 80s and 90s and 70s, I'm wondering, Jeff, since you were there, what about this decade was so grand to you? Yeah, well, like I, I said before, I mean, I think it was really late 90s to 2000. So I'll, I'll amend what I said because because Fallout was 97, yeah. I think. Yeah. And Planescape yeah. Tournament and, and was Fallout like 99. Was, Right. And those, those, you know, those games were really, that was the turning point. In fact, I would say Fallout was the turning point. That, that was where, um, you know, there were all those gold box games from, uh, from Interplay that started getting increasingly long in the tooth. There were horrible games like um, Descent to Undermountain. I don't know if you guys remember that. Just w- where Interplay had the, what they thought was a great idea of using the Descent engine. Oh. in a D and D game. Mm-hmm. Just really just, yeah, look that one up. But, um, <laughs> I will, but, uh, <laughs> but fallout was, you know, fallout, which of course, then, uh, those guys became arcanum or, or became, uh, Troika, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like that's where, you know, I remember when they came to our office to show us Fallout and there was a computer gaming world magazine and there was a discussion about like, you know, could we put a could we put an RPG on the cover of this magazine? Nobody plays RPGs. Like that mm. was kind of the attitude at that time. You know, later, of course, Fallout 2 and Fallout 3 would have been easily right. cover candidates. Um, the same goes really for Baldur's Gate 1. Um, you know, but anyway, the, the point being, I think the late 90s was when things started to turn. And in the early 2000s, I mean, you still had games like, if we want to count Deus Ex, that was 2000. Um, it's arguably uh, an RPG. Um, 
And yeah, World of Warcraft, of course, was 2004. And for better or worse, like you said, that changed the landscape. But it's but the um, the monumental shift that that game provided, like, cannot be understated. Like until until WoW came out, the biggest MMO was EverQuest, and that game had hundreds of thousands of subscribers. And the conventional wisdom at the time was that audience was maxed out. The people who would want to play a game like this and would want to play pay a monthly fee, it's not going to be bigger than hundreds of thousands. And then WoW came along and completely bowled over that number and went into the millions. Right. And what's really interesting about that, and if, if you were there at the time, the discussion before WoW came out was, can Blizzard really do this? <laughs> Blizzard makes RTS games and they made Diablo. Can they even compete with EverQuest? And uh, World of Warcraft launched around the same time as EverQuest 2. And there was actually a lot of worry, even at Blizzard, as to whether they could compete with EverQuest 2, which, of course, ended up being a total flop. So I don't know. What is my point? My point is that, that World of Warcraft was so gigantic and so dominated the decade and was really, really great when it first came out um, that I think that's why I look fondly back at that at that decade. I think it's funny that at the time when World of Warcraft came out, people were saying World of Warcraft is it has quality of life improvements. It compared to EverQuest, it's and Ultima Online, it is so forgiving. And nowadays we look people go, "Wow, classic, Burning Crusade." That was when that was when MMORPGs were hardcore. <laughs> I actually didn't know that. Uh, see, I remember when EverQuest was Evercrack. Like, that was the first MMORPG. Mm -hmm. So, I'm yeah, thinking about, yeah. oh no, it stole my husband or whatever. But I didn't know two was a flop. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, mostly because of WoW. WoW came out a couple months before and, and basically stole Just the audience. Just Yeah, the audience. I see. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. That was around the time I was playing uh, Ragnarok Online, if you want to talk about another 2000s MMORPG. I was kind of referring to the 2000s as maybe the, the dark age of RPGs in some way was for a couple reasons. First, or PC RPGs in particular. First of all, PC RPG, hardcore PC RPGs as we knew them in the 80s and 90s were definitely changing. And that was exemplified by games like KOTOR and Mass Effect, which in many ways, sought to kind of smooth away the rough edges of earlier games like the isometric RPGs and uh, of the 1990s. And then beyond that, everybody suddenly wanted to be an MMORPG because everybody wanted to be World of Warcraft. And then yes. the late 2000s was when, I mean, <laughs> their mobile games became popular, console games kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and could compete directly with PCs and the conventional wisdom, which was a fairly dumb conventional wisdom, but nevertheless, more than a few people had it was that desktop PCs as we knew them, that PCs as a PC RPGs and PC gaming as a thing was going to die, that we were all going to be playing on set top boxes or mobile devices and that there was absolutely no room whatsoever for desktop gaming. And Jeff, like you were, you were in the middle of that. You were in the you were in the thick of that discourse. 
yes, I was. I watched our magazine die. So oh. you're, you're <laughs> exactly right. It, it shut down in 2008. Now it shut down for a lot of reasons. That's that was the crash year, of course. But um, yeah, certainly the last few years of the magazine's existence, you know, we watched the page count shrink because nobody was paying for ads anymore. Uh, yeah. So there really that really was like the dark age of of PC gaming. Absolutely. I mean, thinking back on on the golden age of of PC RPGs, I would revise it to say like ninety seven to two thousand and four. I think it, it does fall off the cliff in the second half of the decade. Absolutely. Yeah. But early 2000s, you still have like Icewind Dale. You still had some of the isometric RPGs going strong in, in the first part of the decade. Yeah, that's that's kind of as I was compiling some of my notes for today and stuff. Uh, I was I was looking at it as this is a decade of I think you're both right. There is a golden age and there is a dark age because you do have this beginning of the decade where you have all these incredible studios like Troika and Black Isle and um, Bioware is still doing what many people refer to as classic Bioware, the Baldur's Gate 2 stuff. And and then you have practically a dividing line, right, where World of Warcraft comes out. And then you start to see things like Dragon Age Origins, like Fallout 3. I forget what year Fallout 3 was. Um, I later it was 2008. On in the decade, I believe. Yeah, later on in the decade. Uh, where things did start to lean more towards 3D action oriented. Uh, and, and I say this as a fan of Mass Effect and as a fan of of at least one of the 3D fallouts um, where it, it was a completely different shift and there was a completely different mindset mindset happening. And sadly, you saw a lot of incredible studios like Troika and Ion Storm and, and Black Isle close down and, 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 and move out of the business and, and be replaced by uh, other things. And the ones that didn't were getting bought where Bioware was getting picked up by electronic arts. Uh, Obsidian was, was starting to rise up into the mix. Uh, Blizzard was, was getting bigger and bigger. And so you had this movement, I think from one side of the industry working on one side of RPG to a completely different kind. And that did also herald, you know, the inevitable popularity of the Xbox 360 and things like that. So it's a, it's a weird era for PC RPGs in particular, as it started to halfway through the decade uh, deal with consoles becoming so popular and, and the need to develop for consoles alongside RPGs, PC RPGs. Yeah. I mean, you're, we were talking about Bioware and Bethesda just now. I mean, the two thousands were heralded by, both of those companies moving over to console in a big way and it paid huge dividends for them like kotor made bioware as a popular studio in so many ways i mean like i think a lot of fans would say hey baldur's gate 2 is a superior rpg it's a deeper rpg but that didn't matter because kotor had the star wars license and it was on a it was on a console it was on the xbox and then meanwhile I mean, this was outside of Blizzard, which of course had WoW. This was also the decade of of Bethesda, right? I mean, they were putting out, uh, just in this decade, they put out Morrowind. They put out Oblivion. They put out Fallout 3. Those are three titanic open world RPGs that remain lodged in the memory 
to this day. I mean, just having Oblivion on the Xbox 360 was such a big deal. I remember, Jeff, you telling me that you were like just wildly obsessed, like addicted to uh, Oblivion back in the day. Mm -hmm. Completely. And I also remember how betrayed us hardcore PC gamers felt that it was on the Xbox. Because mostly because we we felt uh, that feeling of doom, like it's not going to go back. You know, the genie's out of the bottle, and and companies like Bethesda are going to are going to stick with the console. Um, So, but you know, I I think one thing that's great now is that those that kind of um, iron curtain between PC and console is basically gone. Doesn't exist anymore. Like we all play everything for the most part. You know, back then you had to choose a side. Yeah. You had, if you were, you know, so I, I yeah, it, I, like I remember that it sucked for me when Bethesda moved to the console. But in retrospect, of course, it was, of course, they had to do that. And their success is incredible. You never could have predicted Bethesda today if you were, when you were playing Daggerfall on the PC. You know, they were just like a little tiny CRPG company. We would, of course, be uh, remiss if we did not talk about Troika. And I see in giant, bold letters, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, baby. I wonder who wrote that. Who could have put that down? It was me. Spoiler. Uh, I mean, I want to shout out Troika just because... uh, I mean, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines for me was like a, a wake up call to a world that I had not even begun to start exploring yet. But when I downloaded it off of Steam and started exploring it, I was like, oh, this is a world of RPG I didn't know existed because I had played most of those late decade RPGs, the Mass Effects and Mass Effect 2s and, and Fallout 3s. But Bloodlines felt like a different beast entirely. And obviously, you can't talk about Troika without talking about how Troika was not recognized in its time, frankly. Um, it's Bloodlines was notoriously the game that killed Troika. Uh, at Temple of Elemental Evil, its other game made by its other team, and then its predecessor, Arcanum uh, of Steamworks and Magic Obscura, which I am like working on a playthrough of right now, so we can talk about for the top 25. But this is a this is a studio that came out of that Fallout, Fallout 2 team and tried to really do something unique and interesting. And I you know, it was an era where they were also playing with worlds and ideas that were very novel and interesting. I mean, Vampire is an established tabletop RPG, but Arcanum in particular was a completely just different world from what you were seeing at the time. But this is the era of games that felt like they would be recognized later on down the line, uh, especially from Troika. And so shout outs to a studio that did incredible stuff and to the point that it seems people can't even begin to replicate it because bloodlines two is still trying to <laughs> happen <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Uh, and some might argue that you really can't replicate what bloodlines is, but uh, also shout outs to while I was doing research for this, I found a CRPG blog that was definitely of this era, but is still being updated to this day. And they argued that bloodlines was the worst Troika game. And it was actually Arcanum that was the best and mm. shout outs to that blog. Because even if I disagree with a person, I love it when they're like, no, this more esoteric game from this long lost studio is actually the better one. And I love that. So I'm, I'm going back to that blog later to read more of their, their stuff. RPG is fantastic. Codex. 
I think RPG Codex linked uh, listed Arcanum as like in their top five, and RPG RPG Codex is they're in their own world, I think. But yeah, no. Um, among a certain class of PC RPG fan, I feel like Arcanum remains very high in the esteem. Like we we like to talk about how sometimes I will adopt a hard luck RPG and say no for all of its flaws. The, sh- the strengths of this RPG shine through and that is Arcanum to the nth degree. <laughs> Same with Vampire <laughs> the Masquerade. Because in some ways I feel like people love Troika almost for what it represents as much for the actual output. Mm-hmm. Because it was the studio that did not get picked up by electronic arts or whatever. It was the one that was trying to do its own thing and just couldn't get funding. And there's like, there is that bit of almost punk mentality, that anti-establishment mentality. Like, no, they're making the RPGs that RPG fans want, you know, the real, the good stuff. And versus the things that became increasingly commercialized, like your worlds of Warcraft and your masses of effect and things like that. Right. And none of those games were really big hits. None of the Troika games were, were, were blockbusters by, by any stretch of the means. So it's probably why they didn't get picked up by a studio. Um, and and they even didn't review that well. I, I, I'm pretty sure that CDW did not review Arcanum that well. Um, you know, it was very buggy upon release. Um, and buggy games were a lot different back then. You know, was, you couldn't just have a day one patch. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so I, I, I think it's cool that Troika's reputation now is so good and that these games have sort of uh, stood the test of time because they really were underappreciated in their day. Jeff, I'm wondering, can you compare the modding community in the 2000s to the 90s? Because certainly the modding community existed in the 90s, but in it's it feels to me like modding kind of was mainstreamed in the 2000s would you agree or disagree I oh, I would definitely agree yeah um for sure I mean when I think about modding in the 90s honestly what I think about is doom and I think about doom wads um and getting them off CompuServe for anybody who <laughs> yes, knows what that hello. is uh I have a quick story for you Jeff uh, my first, one of my first internet experiences was my friend. Her dad was linked up to CompuServe for work reasons, so he went on a Star Trek chat room and said, "You're all nerds." <laughs> <laughs> and that was my first internet thing, and we got kicked out, but it was fun. <laughs> I, I guess you know Black Isle kind of also they they kickstarted a lot of the more modern. Uh, modding with uh neverwinter nights you know that was the first game that uh included where they you had the official approval of the studio itself to go and make your own dungeons go make your own game um so they were they were early adopters of that and i I think that is probably what turned modding into what we more we know of it now Uh, it became a more established thing for a studio to give players the tools to make their own game or their own levels Am I answering your question, Kat? No, that that makes total sense because what I I was just thinking about how uh, certainly Bethesda games benefited heavily from the modding scene of the 2000s, Bioware games. The fact that Neverwinter Nights designing uh, dungeons in Neverwinter Nights was just slightly different 
was often a requisite to be able to get an actual job at Bioware mm-hmm. or as a oh. RPG quest designer yeah. in that thing. And uh, certainly KOTOR 2, which when that game came out, it was unfinished and busted. And mods came in and managed to dig out a lot of the ending files that were never used and that kind of thing. So I think that because desktop PCs became so much more accessible and the internet became so much more accessible, it was a lot easier to be able to access the tools that you needed to be able to easily mod these games. And that was the starting point of what we would, I would say, arguably make PC uh, gaming what it is today because PC gaming is more of a hobbyist thing than ever. And I'm sure we'll get to this when we talk about the the 2010s and beyond, but uh, PC gaming is more of a hobbyist thing than ever, but so much of its popularity is fueled by the modding scene. And I feel like this is when specifically right. the modding scene as we knew it really kind of took off. I also want to make a note here that another company we've been talking about was also very big in the modding scene, ironically, not for their RPG, but for their RTS through Blizzard. Uh, a lot of the custom game work that was happening was happening around this time. And this is when things like Dota started to come up. So haha, ha, ah. I got Dota into this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you, you look at Warcraft three, which is an RTS, but they infused a bunch of RPG mechanics into it to have things like hero characters and inventories and leveling. And then in comes ideas like Dota, which I've said before is basically a competitive five V five RPG. And, you start to see the ways in which that stuff evolves. And then that becomes a genre in and of itself. Entire genres start spawning up out of all the modding efforts that are happening. PC RPGs were a, in an interesting place in the 2000s. I guess I was thinking in terms of the Disney Renaissance in some ways, where uh-huh. comparing the 80s to the early days of Disney and then Disney in the 60s and 70s and that kind of thing to the 90s and then getting into the 2000s was kind of the i don't know the 90s was a disney renaissance and the 2000s were uh the times when disney animation was having a tough time and then pc gaming was able to recover look it's not a perfect it's not a perfect comparison but i do my best (laughs) but (laughs) the imagery works you're good i i guess the 2000s were a land of contrast for pc rpgs on the one hand, I mean, just looking at this list of RPGs that Eric wrote down, there's so many absolute classics in here between, I mean, World of Warcraft and Morrowind and um, Neverwinter Nights and Deus Ex and Diablo 2. But then in the mid-2000s, you also had Black Isle Studios closing its doors. Uh, these huge stalwarts that dominated in the 90s, like Interplay, closing the doors or hitting financial troubles. And people, I mean, one of the first covers I remember seeing at GamePro when I started there in 2011 was PC gaming. It's not dead for real. That was the kind of mentality that people were having was that PC gaming straight up was dying. So the contrast Mm -hmm. between these two of these amazing games that were coming out at the time and then also the attitude of PC gaming is dying, just like clashing is clashing in my mind. Yeah, a lot of it was it, it had to do with audience size too. Like suddenly, what would have been a hit 
in the 90s or, or even the 80s was no longer a hit in the 2000s because the, the companies were all looking at the console numbers. So you couldn't have a, a small, medium-sized PC game and, and call it a hit. Um, it like it, it's like the goalposts move, but the, the games didn't. You know, the, the games were it were in many cases better than ever, but the audience just wasn't there. I'm just salty because Space Combat Sims died in the 2000s, and I've never forgiven them. Speaking of which, as a digression, I was at the Star Wars Squadrons talk at GDC, and Dave Wesman stood up. And asked uh, Ian Fraser, the designer of Star Wars Squadrons, did you ever consider calling the original developers of TIE Fighter and X-Wing while you were making Star Wars Squadrons? And in a very like pissed off way, and Ian <laughs> Fraser was like, duh. <laughs> nah. <laughs> uh, but apparently Ed Killam works for EA still, which I did not realize. But that was my random X-Wing uh, digression the 2000s was when adventure games also were dead for a period of time yeah. as well it's funny i actually did play a bit of point and click adventure games on my compact i like games like uh goblins for example i used to play that like crazy when i was younger but i felt like that was around the time when i started reviewing mobile games i started to kind of notice hey point and click is back and it's all on mobile and it was for a time i played some really excellent games that and um, I'm sure we'll get a little bit into it, but Facebook, much as I hate to say it, but there was, a, there was a time when Facebook gaming was huge and I reviewed a lot of those games too. And that's where a lot of the adventure games went. I played them on Facebook. It's just, it was yeah, a weird time. By the, yeah. by the late 2000s, people were like browser gaming, social yeah, media gaming, absolutely. Facebook mm-hmm. gaming, Mafia Wars and Farmville. We were like, mm-hmm. these Don't games are taking over, pets. baby. Yeah, Blizzard made an entire adventure game and then didn't release it. Because they just knew it wouldn't sell. It was done. Warcraft Adventures was was done. Uh, and a lot of the storyline from that game ended up in WoW. They just took the lore and, and shoved it into that game. <laughs> That's neat. I like that. Yeah. RTS died in the 2000s, too. I'm very bitter yeah, did. Mm-hmm. about the 2000s. Oh, one, one aspect that I would be totally remiss if I didn't mention is the 2000s is when we got Steam as well. And yeah. Yeah. As a platform, Steam was not popular when it first launched. Everybody hated it. It gobbled <laughs> up tons of memory. People were very salty that Half-Life 2 or Half-Life 2 was the only way to be able to play it was to be able to play it on Steam. But by the late 2000s, Steam has just completely taken over and Valve was so ahead of its time in launching that platform to the point that it's just like no, everybody's on Steam. I'm annoyed when things go to places other than Steam. So, uh, do any of you remember YTMND? You're the man now, dog. The site that was kind of, it was oh, like, yeah. like yeah. that came into really its prominence around the same time as Steam was launched. And if you look back, there are so many, so many of those things are dedicated to trashing Steam. Like one of my favorites is like. The URL is Steam Steam LOL, and it's just Ronald McDonald in a race car pointing and yelling LOL internet, and I don't know the music playing in the background, some initial D stuff. Just stuff like that was like made up a huge portion of YTMND's 
discourse, at least until the PlayStation E3 event happened that year <laughs> in 2006. Then that made up more of the discourse. Yeah, it's it's so weird seeing the disconnect because, again, like I, I came up in the era of Steam. So when I started PC gaming, Steam was second nature to me. But uh, once again, Eric's dad is going to make a cameo in this podcast because I remember having to teach him how to use steam so he could play things like the command and conquer remaster collection because he he still has discs of of quake 3 and unreal tournament and all that and that was how he he bought video games he put them in the disc drive he played them there and so the entire concept of steam was to him foreign and now if anyone buys a pc you might as well just have steam pre-installed on it it's it is the the program you boot and as our stars of destiny are pointing out people complain now when other people try to launch not steam and try to get you to use origin or something so the first time i saw steam actually the first time i even heard of steam really was i was at a friend's house and she lives up in the like the wilds of ontario and she was downloading half-life 2 uh, sorry a half-life 2 update through dial-up and that kind of took all day (laughs) our magazine gave that gave steam the coaster of the year that year that was the you know the dud of the year ouch um because we were so anti-steam at that magazine um for the very reason of that half-life 2 you had to be online the idea in 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 that year was it 98 oh and steam when was steam oh four yeah was it that late oh yeah, it was Half-Life the same year as bloodlines yeah. It was 0304, yeah. Okay. All right. Maybe I'm thinking of Half-Life 1. Oh, I yeah. was thinking of Half-Life 1. That was 98. So um, the idea at that time that you had to be online to play a single-player game, mm-hmm. I mean, people still get mad about that now. Yeah. Um, but back then, it was outrageous, and and we just railed against it hardcore. But yeah, I'm, I'm the same as everybody else. I, Steam is basically the PC platform for me. Mm-hmm. And Steam was when Steam basically killed packaged goods on PC mm. a decade before it happened yeah. on console. It was actually pretty remarkable how fast packaged goods died on the PC because we weren't really buying actual packaged physical PC games by 2010, were we? Like, we were pretty much done at no, that we point. <laughs> we were. And it's so sad. I mean, you know, those old boxes were just so great. Mm. All the, you know, the mm-hmm. cloth mm-hmm. maps inside and the hundred page manuals. I, I really miss those days. You know, when you bought the game, you were getting like a whole package of stuff. Yeah. Behind me is my box for a star control too. It had a whole bunch of stuff in it. Yeah. Uh, star control. I still too. have my Civ three my Civ three box and my Starcraft war chest around here. I I think that and especially for RPGs, that was such a big deal because these RPGs in the 90s and the 80s were kind of treated almost like D&D box sets, right? Where they mm-hmm. were kind of trying to give you a sense of place in the world. I used to pour through instruction manuals like I would a tabletop manual because I wanted to know about their world. Um, it's not an RPG, but Return to Zork had the Encyclopedia for Bazica and I would literally just sit there and read because I'd be like, what the heck is a Gru? Oh, my God. You know, stuff like that. Like, I was I was really interested to know about the great underground empire. What do you want? Like, when I was playing TIE Fighter, I got the uh, the Stele Chronicles. Um, and they turned 
the strategy guides into entire expanded Star Wars expanded universe novels. It was amazing. So um, definitely, definitely a different time. And I'm glad that Limited Run Games, which is employs our pal uh, Jeremy Parrish, uh, is continuing that legacy. But does P- do PC games have a, an equivalent to a revival of hard goods the way that console games are having? I don't really think so. I mean. To an extent, there are some people who still really value physical PC releases. I know that because they're a lot harder to find, I think they tend to be quite valuable a lot of the time. Um, Some of the most expensive games, I think, are limited edition PC releases. Mm -hmm. But uh, because, especially, I think, because PC gaming in the 90s and 2000s were such a hobbyist concern and didn't have the same nostalgia right. for a broad mainstream i think it's harder for uh to build a business around it as it were but i bet there is yeah, i, I bet right. i bet the i bet if i did a google search right now i'd find something i think limited run probably does something but yeah the the thing i want to point out there too is that how fast steam took over and how fast digital goods took over mixed in with the fact that disk drives gradually became a part of a PC build that no one accounted for anymore. If you try to put a disk drive in a modern PC build, it's kind of a pain in the butt. And usually it means getting a USB disk drive that you have to hook into your PC because one of one of my PCs down here, the one I'm on right now, had a slot to put a disk drive in, but my current gaming PC to my right has no slot to stick a disk yeah. drive in. It's not built for one because nobody uses them anymore. And I think that is the thing that consoles can have that sort of revival. You know, Nintendo Switch still uses a cartridge, and so That's you can true. still have that physical good. But when when it comes to PC stuff, it's pretty much just collector goods. And you know, there are tomes, manuals, that sort of thing. But in terms of an actual disc, it's just kind of moved past that. Where even if you made it, you would then have to get special things to use it, and so it really becomes a hobbyist thing more than anything that could appeal to even enthusiasts or, or or people who are like general PC gamers. To answer your question, super rare games made something called a mixtape with several indie games on it. So physical versions of indie games on there. I like the idea that it's a tape. That's a mixtape. It's fun. I love it. But so that's pretty much the two thousands for PC RPGs. Like I said, a land of contrasts and I'm curious if you have any final thoughts, Jeff, since you're our special guest and, you know, that was, uh, it was a time. I mean, that was when I started my career was in 2008 and I was reviewing, I was playing the, the end of Command and Conquer and I reviewed Starcraft 2, which came out in 2010. So, um, but yeah, Jeff, like final thoughts. I'm curious. Final thoughts. Well, What's my, my final thought, Kat, is you, you bummed me out. Oh, no, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that's not our goal here. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just teasing you. Um, but you're right. It was, it was really just a, uh, it was a decade of, of contrast. And, and it's sort of crazy to think about it. I never really thought about it in, in these terms, that it, was, that it was so great at the start of the decade and so shitty by the end of the decade. I mean, it was, it, it, it's incredible how fast the decline was. Of, of the PC, not just PC RPGs, but the PC in general. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm going to keep my thoughts focused on the first half of the decade so I stay in a good mood about it. I almost feel like 
we are we are obligated to do an MMORPG episode uh, for the PC RPG quest because they were so important. And I guess, but of course, we would be end up talking a lot about uh, World of Warcraft. But of course, EverQuest. Um, I, I didn't mention Star Wars Galaxies, which is which was its own thing, and I find right utterly fascinating um, mm-hmm. in terms of yeah. how bizarre and it was. Ultima Online. Ultima Online, yeah. EverQuest was huge. I mean, Nadia referred to Evercrack. Evercrack like, yep. remember that was a really big deal. That like wives losing their husbands to that game. That was there were like articles in the mainstream media about that. Did Second Life start in the two thousands? Yes, it did. Oh yeah, early two oh, thousands. That's when oh, I look at the metaverse world. now and I laugh at it. Like the furries are so ahead of you. You have no idea, <laughs> dumb tech bros. <laughs> As always. As always, the furries were leading the way. <laughs> and that is the 2000s edition of the PC RPG Quest. We may do another episode in this particular decade, but we could also keep moving along. If you're interested, go check out our episodes focusing on the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. It's a multi-part series that we've been doing for a little while now, and we've been having a lot of fun. But now it's time for the Top 25 RPG Remake 2022 Intergrade. We only have a few more weeks left before we officially close nominations. So we need to get some big ones in. And actually we do this week. As always, we will nominate four games to go on this list. Three from Kat, uh, from Nadia, Eric, and I, and one from the community. And this week I am nominating Final Fantasy IX. Yes, Final Fantasy IX, Hironobu Sakaguchi's favorite entry in the series, traditionally, I've always been a little down on Final Fantasy IX because it was so difficult to play on the original PlayStation. It was. But yeah. this is one of those RPGs that has really enjoyed a renaissance in recent years, thanks to re-releases, updates on PC, and that has allowed Final Fantasy IX's greatest traits to really be able to shine through, specifically its writing. I think it is one of the best written Final Fantasies that have ever actually been released. It has some of the most iconic characters in Final Fantasy, specifically Vivi. It perfectly captures the essence of Final Fantasy in general. It is a joyful, wonderful RPG. And I think there's a reason that it resonates with so many people. I'm sure we'll do a Pantheon on it someday, and it will go in the Pantheon. There's no question about that. But I feel like Final Fantasy IX is a dark horse contender for actually making it onto the top 25 RPGs of all time. And I think that we need to have the conversation. I like that Sardin said, interesting that this is coming from Kat. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm biding my time. Don't worry. I'll hold, I'll hold some arguments until the day of. Don't worry. We'll have a conversation. All right. <laughs> I guess... Um, so I'm actually interviewing Hironobu Sakaguchi um, for Final Fantasy XIV. So I guess Final Fantasy IX has been on my, my, my mind a little bit. And I guess my, my estimation of it has gone up a little bit in recent times. That's why. It does have Vivi. Vivi is one of the best Final Fantasy characters ever made. I will agree on that. Vivi is perfect. Eric. You're also adding an RPG to this list that has somehow slipped through the cracks to this point. How? 
how has this game slipped through the cracks? I have I, no idea. I literally I have no idea. That's weird. While you were doing your explanation from Final Fantasy IX, I went back to make sure that we somehow had not put Persona 5 Royal on the list of nominations, and somehow we missed it. But yeah, I'm putting Persona 5 Royal forward this week. This is... Look, I love a lot of Personas, and we can have the conversation about Persona 3 and Persona 4, but I think with Royal with the addition of of the characters that they added to that game it is one of the best rpgs of the last generation of consoles the ps4 generation and honestly stylistically few rpgs can hold a candle to this game just it has not just a look you know it's not just graphically pleasing in the traditional sense but i mean it is so dedicated to its own look having its own style that looks so different from everything else out there. It, it blends with the music so well. Uh, I do think I said earlier that Persona 3 is probably my favorite party and that stands true. Uh, but I think Persona 5 uh, in terms of the breadth of not just the party, but the different social links that you have is extremely good, has some great social link content in there. Uh, I just love heists. Who doesn't love a heist? Heists Everybody are loves perfect. a heist. They're, they're it's a perfect great. video game content. And it's, it's yep. a video game about heists, stealing hearts. And I mean, you think about that moment when they broadcast the Phantom Thieves across Tokyo and saying, we're coming for your heart. And oh, there's mm, gives me chills thinking about it. So, yeah, come on. It's it's Persona 5. We've got to talk about it. Music, art, battle system. It's the best Persona battle system. No question. There's there's no debate. You you can't tell me different. Uh, it, it It's just all around a perfect game. The question is, can Persona 4 and Persona 5 exist on the same list? No, because I would say Persona 4 is the worst of the <gasps> three modern Personas. So. Oh, you're oh my fired. God. Oh, my God, <laughs> Eric. So oh, yeah, I'm riling the chat up now. I'm just <laughs> I'm pulling the ripcord, baby. There's some aspects. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, we should have this conversation. I feel like we've had this conversation in the past, but. We yeah, have because I wrote up Persona 4 versus Persona 5 for the Pantheon to begin with. We had a whole argument on the podcast, but um, my my feelings on Persona 4 have evolved in recent years. Uh, since, In fact, since the Top 25 RPG countdown originally, so it's going to be an interesting conversation. Nadia, I don't understand the pick that you made, but hey, whatever. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> Do it. Do it. I I am putting on Act Razor by Quintet. I don't care what any of you think. It is an RPG, action RPG. Yes, I'll give you that. But if we can have Bloodborne, I don't see why we can't have Act mm-hmm. Razor. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. not only mm-hmm. is Act Razor an RPG, but it's actually brilliant in its implementation of leveling up. You are a god. You are the master, and you build these like villages, and the people you know they multiply and they worship you, and the more people you have that's how your stats go up that's how your stats are boosted so you have to invest in making these towns kind of nice and friendly and livable and chasing away monsters and you get to clear the land to begin with like because basically when you start the game uh you have lost everything is lost uh, to the devil and you have to reclaim like these swamps these grasslands these forests and whatnot and then people can move into them and their worship gives you power, and you can use that power to go clear out other places. And it's not linear, which is really cool. And in fact, settling one village will help you settle another one, like sometimes in the middle of we're doing one village, and then you go, you have to, you come across a problem you can't solve until you clear another patch of land and another land. 
and raise up the solution. For example, your desert town might have the plague spreading everywhere. But if you go and uh, kind of if you clear away the tropical land that's a little bit further down the map, you can you can establish a civilization that grows herbs and you take those herbs back to the uh, desert town and it clears up their plague and they can resume building and you can resume getting those upgrades. So yeah, it's not like an RPG turn-based traditional sense, but it's stats play a very important part of this game and how you get those stats is equally as important. And it's just, I think it's a really interesting dance between the two sort of gameplay styles. And there was actually a, Actraiser Renaissance, which I thought was a great game. I really enjoyed that. And I think it got the essence for the most part of what captured the original the the spirit of the original Actraiser. So yeah, it's going on there. I don't care. We are coming down to the end, and Quintet is so drastically underrepresented. If we can give it to, up to Triace, we can certainly give it up to Quintet. Thank you. We're not putting Terra Nigma on here. We're putting we're putting Actraiser on here. We have isn't Terra well Terranigma already like got recognized in the Pantheon, so it's in the Pantheon, but it's not automatically on the nomination list. I don't know. I feel like uh just the implementation of how you level up in Act Razor was so unique I had to kind of give it a shout mm. out. I mean Terranigma's amazing too, but it's very traditional in how you level up. See, Nadia, you opened the Pandora's box of everybody saying that they want 13 Sentinels on this list now. Mm-hmm. So oh, good job. Oh, we've got weeks left. We've got weeks left. We've got we got time. Wait until I, I, I give it up for Illusion of Gaia. Then you're all in trouble. Oh, my God. And <laughs> this week's community nomination is for Shadow Hearts Covenant. And this is what young Sheldon Ring had to say. I nominated it the first week, and I just wanted to re-up the nomination. Um, and they talk about how the characters are all pretty unique as far as RPG characters go. By the way, they wrote like a novel, extolling the virtues. True to Shadow, Shadow Hearts. Hearts this is a very long entry yes. for the top 25. So I'll just grab some highlights. The characters are all pretty unique. You get a vampire and a Geppetto and literally Princess Anastasia Romanoff, aside from maybe Karen, who's kind of a straight man. I love stories to take place in historical eras, but show a, hid- a sort of hidden side. And the WW2 setting really lets them mine one of the culture's most well-known time periods. The Judgment Ring system is probably my favorite turn-based battle system of all time. I love a good timing-based battle system. Very few reach the level of Covenant. The ring can be modified to a ridiculous degree. And I cannot talk about, I can't not talk about the soundtrack either. It's gothic and moody and full of some really beautiful tuned percussion. The battle system gets me so pumped with that rolling bass and the chanting. Some great contributions by Yasunori Mitsuda really round out out too. Anyway, my main goal isn't here to even say this is definitely a top 25 RPG, but it's definitely my personal top five and I would not feel right if it didn't make a case for it or the series as a whole. And lots of people on the Discord were agreeing, and Veronica Cat was saying, couldn't have said it better myself. So here you are. Shadow Hearts Covenant is our community pick for this week. And those are our four picks for this week's Top 25 RPG Remake 2022 Integrate. We only have a few weeks left, so go get your nominations in. We have not that much time left. You can go drop it in the channel. In the Discord, we've got a pinned list of all of the nominations to this point. Now, normally I would say, hey, Nadia, take us home, but Jeff, you're here, so I open the floor to you. Do you have a Jeff's Nostalgia Nook this week? It doesn't quite roll off the tongue, but whatever. 
Well, when you asked me this earlier today, I was thinking about the first time that I met the uh, Bioware folks. Oh. Did that count? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, they, the first time I met, uh, it was Greg and uh, Ray themselves who came to the Computer Gaming World office. And we forgot that these two doctors were going to show up at the office. So they got off the elevator, they came in. This is all we knew is that they were two doctors and they were making a PC game. And nobody wanted to take this demo. We <laughs> forgot they were coming. We were all busy doing other things. And nobody wanted to talk to these two guys because it was like, oh, man, it's a couple of doctors. Like, what the hell do they know? Entertainment. This is going to be terrible. So they, yeah, they showed up and they brought uh, T-shirts for all of us that was, you probably couldn't make this shirt now. I, I don't know if you could, if it would be offensive or not, but it was a raised fist with a, a pair of horn rim glasses over it and it said geek power. You think you could make that? Maybe, I don't know, would that be offensive? I don't think so, um, but it's not exactly like in good taste. I feel like I've seen that exactly. shirt on a Facebook ad before, so. Really? Yeah. Yeah, so 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 they showed up and they what they were demoing was um, Shattered Steel, which was their mm -hmm. first game, which mm -hmm. actually was not an RPG, it was a Mech Warrior clone. Um, and it was actually pretty good. Um, but what I remember is nobody wanted to talk to Ray and Greg. That's my that's my memory of them. And then, of course, later they became heroes mm -hmm. and multimillionaires and, and everybody loved them. I can't imagine, like, I see where you're coming from because if I'm wherever and I'm busy and I hear two doctors are coming in to show their game, I think, oh, God, it's something like how your digestive system works or some, like, mm -hmm. totally. some schlock mm -hmm. you play that's on the exactly Apple II That's exactly what we thought. Yeah, yeah. Here's yeah, I remember moment. I yeah. still remember that day. I was thinking it was gonna be like operation, you know, uh -huh. like the <laughs> kid board game. You get a real shock if you touch the Adam's apple. <laughs> oh god, call nine one one. Terry Nguyen, uh, who was over at One Up back in the day, uh, who also I think worked did work for EGM and CGW, um, had a good relationship with Bioware and the doctors, and I think it was in part because he gave Bioware the time of day back before Bioware uh, actually became big. That's nice. That's actually nice. I like it, that. it took a while. Even even after Baldur's Gate came out, they they um, I remember when they were uh, they asked us to come up to Edmonton to do a Baldur's Gate 2 cover story. And I, I flew up to do that and they got me like so drunk. That's a whole other story uh, because that Canadian beer, man, it's I a little was not stronger. Prepared. Yeah, it's a, it's a little stronger, but um, but what I do remember about about the Baldur's Gate two cover story was in the end after I wrote the story, the the people above me on the editorial staff didn't think that Baldur's Gate two Baldur's Gate two now an acknowledged one of the acknowledged classic was not worthy of being on our cover, and so that was the December issue, which was always traditionally the gift guide issue, and EA had um, an NBA live game coming out. So we put Michael Jordan on the cover oh instead God. of Baldur's Gate 2 on Computer Gaming World. So, yeah. I One of my fondest early memories is having sushi with Greg and talking about Dragon Age Origins with him uh, before, because Dragon Age Origins hadn't just come out yet. And I was playing Dragon Age Origins for Guide at oneup.com. And they were like, Kat, come hang out with Greg. And since I was the only one who had played it at that point, I was able to just sit around and talk with him about it and also reminisce about Japan and that kind of thing. And he was one of the nicest and most genuine people yeah. I've, uh, I've ever met. And from that point on, both of them would be like, hey, Kat, like every time um, 
I was at an event or something. They were still going to events in like the late 2000s, long after they didn't really have to anymore. They were, and they stayed humble the entire time. Jeff, you'll actually probably appreciate this as I, one of my first biggest breakout interviews back when I was uh, mentored by John Davison, who is now with IGN.com. Mm, yes. He gave me a assignment for, gosh, it's so long ago, I can't remember what magazine it was, but uh, I had to interview Brian Reynolds, uh, the Civ guy, mm-hmm. because he had gone to Zynga for a while. So I actually went to Zynga and I talked mm-hmm. to Brian Reynolds. He's a really, really, really energetic guy, but holy crap, is he mm-hmm. ever sweet. My, uh, this actually ties into a Nadia's nostalgia nook a little bit because I made him die laughing. I had heard his wife was was Jewish, so I always like to exchange Jew stories. And I told him about how <laughs> my brother, like my mother used to light the candles every Friday for Shabbos, for the Sabbath. And one year, my brother... Like I was at my parents' house that particular night, and my brother was there too. And he comes by, and he has a cigarette in his mouth, you know. And he takes a cigarette and he lights it with with the candle, with the Shabbos candle. And my oh mother, my being a convert from like from Irish uh, Catholicism to Orthodox Judaism, said, and I quote, "Jesus Christ, don't light your cigarette with the Shabbos candles." And I told the story <laughs> to Brian Reynolds, and he was on the floor, like he just died. And that was my. <laughs> That was my greatest accomplishment. Also, it turned me on to Itamame. I never had it before. I loved it. And somehow, Nadia, as usual, manages to... She's like, no, 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 Jeff. You don't get the nostalgia nook. This is my nostalgia nook. It was my relevant. I had to to tell tell my story. It was a good story. But I wasn't even a Civ fan, so when I told like other people, yeah, I got to interview Brian Reynolds, like, holy crap, I'm so jealous. I'm like, yeah, he was a cool guy. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode of Axel Blood God. Jeff, you're a special guest. Please go ahead and promote some things. Uh, at Greenspeak, and come watch my uh, Elden Ring uh, live stream. Same, uh, same name, Greenspeak. And you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford and Eric is at CMUC. We're heading into the post show now with the stars of Destiny, and we're going to be talking about Sonic 2, the Sonic 2 movie. So that'll be a lot of fun. So come on over, join us. You can sign up over at the Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod to have access to our live recordings and also our post show and all of the rest of our content. We appreciate all of the support. It helps the podcast continue to go, pays off our bills. And so we appreciate all of that. We'll be back next week, as always, for more RPG discussion and nostalgia nooks and everything else. But until then, Nani, myself, and Eric, and Jeff, thanks so much for listening. Happy adventure. What have we here? Very well, let us both learn together. Heresy is not native to the world. It is but a contrivance. All things can be conjoined. <laughs>